0: Key in your hand, but can't find a hole. You drink too much. Yes, you drink too much. You can't do nothing because you drink too much. I give you money to pay a bill. You come home smelling like a liquor still. You drink too
1: much. It seems hard to believe now, but the political processes of this nation were worked successfully almost a century ago to outlaw the drinking of wine. Beer and alcoholic spirits. The Constitution was actually amended for this purpose. The story of America's spectacularly unsuccessful experiment in banning alcohol will be told on PBS stations this week in a documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick titled Prohibition. Our guest today will be prominently featured in this series. It's a subject about which he knows a great deal, for historian Daniel Okren has penned an engrossing and witty book whose narratives will surely be woven into the fabric of this latest Ken Burns effort, That book is the New York Times bestseller, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. CNN CEO Walter Isaacson said, The book is filled with delightful details, colorful characters, and fascinating social insights. And what a great tale. Prohibition may not have been a lot of fun, but this book sure is. This correspondent would agree. And having read it again, to prepare for this chat, I would add that the colorful characters only got more colorful the second time through, the details only more entertaining. Daniel Okrent was the first public editor for the New York Times and editor-at-large at at Time, Inc., where he remains a consultant. He's authored four previous books, including The Great Fortune, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History. We're pleased to have him join us today and delighted to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Daniel Okrent. Thank you, Doc. I am keen to ask about uh, about the unknown political genius that that your book illustrates, the man who made the 18th Amendment possible. But before going there, I'd, I'd like to have you tell us a little bit about how much drinking was going on in America in the late 19th century and, and how much of a problem it really was.
0: Well I think the, the best uh, description of how much drinking went on at least in the early and middle 19th century was provided by the historian W.J. Rorabaugh uh, who studied this question closely and, and, and wrote, um, Americans of that period drank from the crack of dawn to the crack of dawn. Uh, <laughs> liquor was part of uh, not just everyday life but every hour of life. You drank when you were happy, you drank when you were sad, you drank when you raised the barn. You drank when the barn burned down. You drank at the polls when you went to vote. Uh, you drank at the party after the after the vote. You drank at funerals. It was uh, uh, so extreme that in 1830, which was the peak or maybe the the, the abyss of American drinking habits, <clears throat> the average American over 15 uh, drank uh, the equivalent of 7.3 gallons of pure alcohol a year. That's the equivalent of 90 fifths of 80 proof <laughs> of liquor. <laughs> 1.8 bottles per week per person, and if you consider that a lot of people didn't drink at all, those who did drink were really, really drinking.
1: Wow. This story of prohibition is intermingled with the efforts to gain American women the vote, and I think that sort of surprises some people. Can you talk about the role the suffragettes had in efforts to ban drinking?
0: Sure. They were, it was essential. Uh, I don't think you could have had the 18th Amendment without the suffrage movement, and uh, concurrently, I don't think um, you could have had suffrage without the uh, political activism of the people who were campaigning against liquor, the temperance movement. Susan B. Anthony, in fact, um, began her career in public life at a meeting of the... She was a temperance worker, and she went to a meeting of the New York State Sons of Temperance in Albany, and when she rose to speak, she was told that the meeting uh, was for the sisters to listen while the brothers spoke, and that's what drove her into the into the voting rights movement. She realized that the changes she and many of her sisters believed uh, were necessary to cut down, uh, cut down America's uh, addiction to liquor uh, could only come about if women got the vote, and she was absolutely right.
1: Well, it's early in the 19th century. Drinking is enormously popular. The taxes on alcohol are, are a huge source of government revenue, and in very, very few locations would a majority choose to ban alcohol. At this point, enters Wayne B. Wheeler of the Anti-Saloon League. Uh, last call, I think really illustrates the importance of this now largely forgotten man. Can you tell us about him?
0: Well, I think you're being generous to say largely forgotten, Doug. He's totally <laughs> forgotten. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this was a man whose picture was on the front page of every American newspaper repeatedly through the years leading up to Prohibition and until 1927 uh, when he died at a fairly young age. Um, and then by the time Prohibition was over, he was forgotten and he's remained forgotten. But he was really a political genius. He's the one that made the amendment happen. He understood that if you controlled uh, enough voters at the margins, 5 or 10 percent in any given district, and if you could deliver those voters, you could carry the, the day by supporting the candidate who supported your cause. He didn't care what your opinion was on foreign policy, on the vote for women, on civil rights issues. On In today's uh, language, he wouldn't have cared whether, uh, what you thought about gay marriage, about abortion, anything, so long as you were on his side on liquor, and then he would support you. Uh, One of his colleagues said the Anti-Saloon League, the organization that uh, Wheeler wrote to to, to success with, uh, existed for the purpose of political retribution, to defeat candidates who would not support them. And Wheeler manipulated uh, the political system entirely legally, uh, but entirely effectively, that he was able to bring about this radical change, a change in the Constitution, even though there was nowhere near a majority of Americans who supported it.
1: Well, at one point, Wheeler takes on the candidate for the Ohio governorship, one of the, uh, I guess you'd say, people that political fixer Mark Hanna put in office. He defeats him. That must have woken some people up as to the, the power of Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League.
0: That's where it begins. It's in Ohio in 1904, 1905, when a very popular Republican governor is opposing a local option bill, and not opposing it entirely, and he he was not pro liquor particularly. But it was a bill that Wheeler and his colleagues wanted to pass, and they decided they were going to go after him, and they beat him. And from that moment forward, everybody else in American politics was on notice that the Anti-Saloon League was able to deliver votes, and they would deliver votes.
1: Well, the Anti-Saloon League, Women's Christian Temperance Union, they're fighting for prohibition, but as you point out in the book, uh, the movement to ban alcohol really forged some strange political alliances. The suffragettes were joined by the, the Ku Klux Klan, they were allied with the, uh, the international workers of the world, and sort of hard for us to imagine now, but we've got progressives that were working hand-in-hand hand with racists to fight for Prohibition.
0: It was an amazing coalition. It stretched, as you said, from the Ku Klux Klan on the far right to the IWW on the far left, and they all had their different reasons for supporting Prohibition. Uh, the KKK supported Prohibition largely as an anti-immigrant movement. They saw that the politics of the big cities were being taken over by particularly by irish and italian immigrants uh... and that the most influential political figures in many of the cities of the northeast and the midwest were saloon owners and they wanted to take take their country back uh... to uh... use a phrase that's come back into uh... regular uh, use the progressives seventeen of the eighteen members of the progressive party in congress uh... when the uh... constitutional amendment was voted on voted for prohibition they believed it was a way of improving the lot of the working people, that, they were, that the working people were held down by their dependence on their addiction to, to alcohol. At the far left, the IWW, similarly, they believed that the working man was held down, but that specifically that alcohol was a tool of the, in, of the industrialists, of the plutocrats, that they consciously used to keep the working man in his place.
1: Well... U.S. enters World War I, and uh, the anti-German feelings that sort of got aroused get transferred against brewers, who are largely German immigrants. And, of course, I guess Wayne Wheeler has a hand in this, and he arranges for some congressional hearings.
0: Yeah, and that's what puts it over the top. I mean, it's one thing to get something through two-thirds of the House of Representatives and two-thirds of the Senate to get the amendment. Uh, submitted to the states, but then you need 30 set at the time. 36 of the 48 had to approve the amendment for it to be ratified, and that was a very would be a very very tough and long uh, uphill political battle. In fact, um, in a compromise, they put into the amendment that they had seven years to get it adopted, uh, or it would it all the the ratifications for the individual states would expire. N- a lot of people thought there was no chance they could get it done in seven years. Well, in fact, it took them barely a year. And the World War I was the key factor. Uh, Wheeler was able to say, you know, look at these people whose last names are Schlitz and Schmidt and Pabst and Anheuser and Bush, and so on and so forth. And they are all German. Their names, and we are fighting uh, a war against the Germans, and they're taking American grains and using it to make their foul beer. They are corrupting the morals of the American serviceman. They are consuming grain that could be used to feed the starving Belgians, and at a time when anti-German feeling was so strong, so strong. For instance, that they didn't play Beethoven in Boston for the length of World War One after the U.S. came into it. Uh, once you have made these German brewers the enemy, the enemy of the national cause of World War One.
1: That's what put it over the top. Well, your book's filled with a lot of intriguing details. There's a small one I just wanted to cite because it just sort of, sort of caught my interest that Wheeler deliberately kept the phrase intoxicating liquors in, in what was going to be the 18th Amendment rather than refer to alcoholic drinks, and that helped keep the winemakers and the brewers who thought they might be exempted, being with lower concentrations of alcohol, from working with the distillers, which is, like, what an astute move. <laughs>
0: Incredible move. Uh, you know, simple linguistics. If, if the phrase had been that it was banning all alcoholic beverages, it was very clear what a beverage with alcohol was. But intoxicating beverages. There's whose opinion? How much do you say is intoxicating? So uh, there were particularly uh, people who believed in in, in wine and in beer that they believed that they would be to be exempt from the law and that we'd be able to continue to consume those those beverages. But once you pass the constitutional amendment, you no longer need three-quarters of the states. You don't need two-thirds of each House of Congress. You need a majority of the House, a majority of the Senate, and the president to sign a bill. that's when the Volstead Act, the Enforcement Act, was passed. And that's where Wheeler put in his definition of an intoxicating beverage, which is to say anything that had more than one-half of 1 percent alcohol in it, which would have made german chocolate cake and sauerkraut illegal <laughs> if people had really thought about it so it was a it was a real shock a shock to the system a shock to the many people who supported prohibition now we're beginning to have second thoughts
1: well america finds itself saddled with the ban on alcohol through the 18th amendment volstead act but they leave loopholes in the restrictions that are so huge as to become comical and can you tell us about some of those
0: well, there were three primary loopholes. The first one was for medicinal purposes. You could continue to get liquor for medicinal purposes, and uh, anybody who lives in California and who's familiar with the recent history of marijuana it's used for medicinal purposes would, would certainly understand that. Um, you could go in most American cities to your local physician and buy a prescription for, for, for 3 bucks, and trot it down to your local pharmacy, and once there you could get a pint of liquor every 10 days. I have a physician's record book that I bought on eBay, actually, from providence rhode island in the late 1920s they were required by law to record the name of everybody they wrote a liquor uh, prescription for and the disease that it was being prescribed for and the disease in every case it, it, it you know it said la grip la grip la grip you know flu the american medical association in fact which it had uh, in 1917 said that there was no use for alcohol in the uh, medicine cabinet in 1921 1922 they changed their minds they took a poll of american physicians and came out with 27 different ailments that they said could be uh, treated with uh, the use of alcoholic beverages. And these ailments ranged from uh, cancer and general debility and snake bite and diabetes (laughs) to, at the other end, my very favorite old age. So that was a a loophole you could drive a a liquor truck through. Um, The second one, which also flourished in, in California, particularly in Napa and Sonoma, was the uh, sacramental wine business. It was obviously the case that they were not going to forbid Catholics and Jews uh, from using wine in their sacraments and in their, in their religious services. By 1921, Georges Delatour, who was the owner of Beaulieu Vineyards, still one of the dominant vineyards in, in Napa Valley, uh, was offering sacramental altar wines in 10 different grape varietals. <laughs> You, you could get it in everything from Riesling to Tokay to Cabernet. and The same thing happened uh, a, little, a little bit differently uh, among Jews. You could only get uh, wine from your rabbi, which meant that, for instance, Congregation Talmud Torah in Los Angeles grew from uh, fewer than 100 members to 1,000 members in the course of the first year of Prohibition. And uh, this was a, another way for people to to get what they wanted and get what they felt that they needed. And the third way was the way that Wheeler needed to get the farm vote, and he knew that farmers were dependent on, on hard cider. So it was uh, put into the Volstead Act that you could preserve fruit. You could make alcohol uh, by, uh, for the purpose of preserving fruit. Well, that led to a huge boom in the grape business in California. They couldn't make their wines in the Central Valley and Napa and Sonoma and elsewhere, but they could ship their grapes east, particularly to the large cities that had large southern and eastern European populations, uh, where people could make it on their own. It was said you could walk down the street of some Italian neighborhoods in Brooklyn in 1925 uh, in October when the pressing was going on, and you could get drunk simply by inhaling.
1: The book is Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. We're speaking with author Daniel Okrent. The forces that made Prohibition the law of the land kind of failed to ensure there'd be some necessary funding to prosecute the vast numbers of people who were going to be you know, arrested and prosecuted. It, it got kind of ludicrous. And um, in the middle of this, there's a woman I think worth mentioning too, Mabel Willebrand. Let's talk about prosecution in general and, and Mabel in particular.
0: Well, as you said, the, the, uh, there was... Um uh, a, a big uh, gap between the wish to have a law and the means to enforce the law. The uh, federal government uh, never appropriated remotely enough money to enforce the law. At the beginning, was $2 million uh, to cover the entire nation. And it was not likely that the uh, very conservative Republican congresses and presidents of the 1920s, who didn't believe... In government much at all uh, we 're going to be appropriating much um, money for enforcement, so um, a really weak enforcement staff, very small, uh, tried to cover the country with a, a napkin when they needed you know some, a gigantic blanket. Uh, the person in charge of prosecuting those cases when people were arrested was Mabel Walker Willebrandt, another Californian, a fascinating and also forgotten character. She was uh, the highest ranking woman in the federal government assistant attorney general in charge of enforcement of prohibition laws among other things um, probably i would think the best-known woman in america at the time who wasn't in the entertainment business she was known as the prohibition portia uh... and she really believed that you have a law, you have to enforce it and she fought with u s attorneys around the country and had them fired if they weren't enforcing it and she campaigned as hard as she could and she tried very much, like the you know the classic boy in the dike in the, in, the in, in Holland, to stop a flood by herself, which she obviously couldn't do.
1: Well, by 1926, it's it's kind of clear to most of the nation that prohibition is not panning out so well. Public opinion starts to turn. Wayne Wheeler dies unexpectedly. The anti-saloon forces lose their best general, and, and things really start to turn about this point.
0: The, the first key development was the candidacy of Al Smith for the presidency of the Democratic ticket. Now, no Democrat was going to win in 1928. It was a very good time. So the economy was rolling. It was a Republican country, two Republican presidents uh, had maintained the, the boom of the 1920s. And then um, you have the Democrats nominating somebody who openly said, that he thought the prohibition was a failure and mistaken, that the laws needed to be changed. And that, on the one hand, Smith lost, and he lost badly. But on the other hand, he brought the question of prohibition into the public debate. Now, a lot of people thought that he lost so badly because he was for getting rid of prohibition, or at least modifying it, when in fact he lost because he was a Democrat and because he was a Catholic from from a large city with an incredible New York honk of an accent. Uh, There was no way, as I said, that he was going to win. Um, So there was this belief by people who uh, were pro-prohibition that they were on easy street, and they made the laws tougher. They made the penalties tougher in 1929, and that only made people turn against it even more. And then the clinching factor came with the arrival of the Depression, just as uh, the need for tax revenue was one of the things that helped bring... bring, uh, prohibition uh, in, the uh, when the income tax was created, in fact, to replace the money from the excise tax on liquor, uh, the absence of tax revenue after the crash of 1929 made people look around for another source of revenue to run the government on. Between 1929 and 1933, you had unemployment up to 25 percent federal income tax collections were down by 33%. There were no capital gains collections at all. Nobody made money on the stock market between 1929 and 1933. The government was running on fumes, and people who had supported prohibition realized that they had to change the law because it was so necessary to get that revenue back. Franklin Roosevelt campaigned in 1932 on the belief that $250 million of revenue would come back just from legalizing beer, Um, And that was a lot of money in those days. And, in fact, in 1934, the first year after Prohibition, fully 9% of all federal revenue came from the renewed sales of alcoholic beverages.
1: Well, it sounds as though in the late 20s that this this sort of a quiet coalition is forming. You you talk in the book about John Raskob. He's he's an ally of Al Smith. He's also working with the DuPonts on the Republican side of things to to repeal Prohibition quietly. And... um, Reading the book, it sounds like this: these efforts sort of are to this day a little bit per- imperfectly understood.
0: Right. I mean, there were there were a lot of people who were sincere in their opposition to prohibition because they thought that it was very bad for uh, the you know the belief in in, in, in law. Um, how could we uh, have a society in which the law is being broken on a regular, visible basis? Why would people respect other other laws? other people were opposed to it because it was an invasion of into their individual rights other people were opposed to it because they wanted the tax revenue back other people were opposed to it because of the incredible amount of crime uh... the crime syndicates that were born during the nineteen twenties because of prohibition but there was a small group and the duponts were the leaders of this group who wanted to bring it back because they thought that they would not have to pay income tax any longer And I, in the book i Quote letters from one DuPont brother to another, saying that if we could only bring back beer, we could get rid of the damnable income tax, and we could save uh, a lot on our corporate taxes as well. So they were uh, somewhat duplicitous when they went public with their their reasons for opposing prohibition. In private, it was for their own good.
1: Well, as Herbert Hoover, faced by Smith, decides he's got to defend prohibition, he loses some key allies. Uh, there's one I understands one of your favorite characters in this in this drama, a woman named Pauline uh, Sabin. She uh, she defects and starts working for the repeal of Prohibition.
0: Yeah, and she made it respectable. Pauline Sabin is a great, great character. She was an heiress to the Morton Salt fortune. Her father was, in, was Secretary of the Navy under Taft. Uh, she was from a very aristocratic family. She was the first woman member of the Republican National Committee. She founded the Women's National Republican Club. She was a very loyal Republican warrior. And she turned against prohibition. She thought that we needed to have some changes. And then she heard Hoover, whom she had supported very avidly, uh, saying in his inaugural addre- address that it was a noble, the noble experiment, that it was worth keeping it in place. And that turned her away from the Republican Party as well as away from the, the uh, pro-prohibition movement. And she began to campaign very publicly, very visibly, against prohibition. And because she was so respectable she was this you know great society lady from new york uh she made the whole cause respectable and just as women through the temperance movement and the suffrage movement had brought prohibition in she led women in the effort to get rid of prohibition she and her friends uh who were in the women's organization for national prohibition reform her group they traveled through the east and the southeast and the south and even to the southwest and in every city they went to the junior league ladies would come out, and they'd say, well, if these fancy New York society ladies can be against Prohibition, I can be against it,
1: too. (laughs) You express some surprise in the book as the efforts are, the tide is turning against Prohibition. There's one thing that really, uh, really was kind of a blow uh, to the dries, which was that they avoided redistricting the states after the 1920 census, and this was, this was quite a political maneuver. They got away with it for quite a long time, and um, it's not really, really talked about much in the history books.
0: (laughs) and and i actually know uh, a couple of uh, very accomplished american historians who said to me what i didn't know about that uh... it just was a, an episode that was uh, entirely passed over the constitution uh, provides that there should be a reapportionment of congress after the decennial c- census and every year that ends in zero and it has happened since the beginning of the republic usually within months sometimes as long as a year after the census was issued you would have a reapportionment of congress In 1920, the prohibition forces, the drive forces, they realized that the population was moving to the big cities from the country, that there were a lot more foreign-born citizens, and they knew that if there were a reapportionment that they could perhaps lose their majorities in Congress, and though it wouldn't lead to repeal, it would lead to change in the law, particularly the Volstead Act. So they simply dragged their feet for nine years, and they had enough political clout that they were able to do this The apportionment that didn't take place until 1929 finally affected the 1930 election. But the 1928 election for Congress was based on population patterns that went back to 1910. And it was a very, very different country then.
1: Well, the end comes as Congress votes to create the 21st Amendment, simply repeal the 18th. But it's itself an extraordinary end to, to this extraordinary social experiment.
0: Very few people thought that it could happen because there had never been a constitutional amendment repealed before. Uh, they thought they could change things by changing the Volstead Act, um, uh, various other uh, efforts, but re- repealing a constitutional amendment couldn't happen. Morris Shepard, the senator from Texas who actually wrote the 18th Amendment, said in 1931 that there was as much chance of the, the uh, uh, 18th Amendment being repealed as a hummingbird to fly to the planet Mars with the Washington Monument tied to its tail. Well, that hummingbird flew uh, barely two years after he said that. Once the country realized that there was a possibility, um, the dominoes fell one by one by one, and and when Texas, which had been a very dry state, Morris Shepard's own state, voted uh, uh, overwhelmingly to repeal prohibition, uh, then it was clear it was doomed.
1: You uh, close the book with a section about some people that you kind of talk about uh, in in the text, And, and my favorite by far is your discussion of Joseph... P. Kennedy. He he sort of earns a passing mention in the book for supplying the booze to his Harvard reunion, but of course in the public mind his name is maybe second only to Al Capone as being thought of as with bootlegging. And your research shows this is pretty clearly not true. Well, you can't you can't prove a negative. Um, <laughs> I wasn't able to watch every minute of Joe
0: Kennedy's life, but <laughs> I think I come to within 99.9% uh, surety that he was not a bootlegger. And uh, in the book, I uh, try to, and I think successfully, explain why people believe that he was. It largely had to do with the fact that he went to, the, to England in September of 1933, as repeal was about to happen, with James Roosevelt, the son of Franklin Roosevelt. And he came back with legal licenses under medicinal permits to import three brands of, of liquor into the U.S., Gordon's Gin, Dewar's Scotch, and I think the third was Hagen-Hagg. Uh, He had those uh, exclusively, and he began to import it legally under these licenses in October and November of 1933, when December 5th arrived and repeal arrived. His trucks were ready to go out across the country. Many years later, when his son rises to political prominence, when John Kennedy rises to political prominence, there's an article about him in the Chicago Tribune, and uh, explaining the origin of the Kennedy family fortune says that Joe Kennedy had imported liquor into the U.S., during prohibition Well, it was in the last month of prohibition, and it was legal what he was doing, uh, but that got left out of the article, and then the story spreads from there. But you know, if, if you go back and, and read the uh, congressional records from 19, the 1930s, when Joe Kennedy had to be approved by the Senate for three different jobs. It was never brought up. Nobody, not the most ardent prohibitionists, not the most ardent Kennedy haters, ever mentioned this as a possibility because it wasn't real. It didn't happen. And we didn't begin to think it happened until many, many years later.
1: This upcoming... PBS Special not the first time you worked with uh, Ken Burns. You were in his epic series in the Civil War, as well as his series on baseball. And I, I do want to note for listeners that you are the inventor of Rotisserie League Baseball.
0: <laughs> Somehow that comes up in every
1: conversation.
0: <laughs> right. And I apologize to wives across the
1: country. <laughs> Any surprises for you in what uh, Burns and Lynn Novick reveal in, in, the, in the series?
0: Well, they just bring it all to life. That's what's so exciting about it. There is this—you know—it's always existed. In the—you know—the five years I worked on the book, it existed very visibly and visually in my head. But to see it in film, they found amazing home movies from the 1920s of people obviously disobeying the law and the music they've got my god the music of the 20s is spectacular and as good as the music has been in many of Burns's earlier works uh, Burns and Novick together uh really make this one thrilling it, it it's an extraordinary piece of work it's uh i particularly think the third installment is uh, as good as anything that uh, has ever come out of the Burns shop
1: well i'll i'll be watching my second and last question has to do with something I stumbled on called Okren's Law. Uh, you've stated <laughs> the pursuit of balance can create imbalance because sometimes something's true, and you're referring to the press providing legitimacy to fringe and minority viewpoints trying to appear even-handed. Just want to say I, I really like that.
0: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I didn't call it Okren's Law. That's what somebody else called
1: it. Well, my final question, you got a book that's chock-a-block with memorable quotes that are sometimes hilarious. Can, can you share a couple of your favorites?
0: Well, I liked what uh, Will Rogers said when uh, Prohibition came in. Uh, He was very foresightful about what was to happen. He said it was really, uh, he said two things. But the first thing that he said was that the reason why it happened is that for all the years leading up to it, the dries were really fighting hard to get rid of liquor, whereas the wets were too busy drinking. (laughs) And it was really true. Uh, The other thing that he said at at that time, after, after Prohibition had arrived, was it was a perfect situation because the uh, liquor was so available. He said it was a perfect situation because the dries had their law and the wets had their liquor.
1: The book is Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. I'll wager that after watching PBS this week, many listeners are going to learn more, and, and your book's going to prove a, a great way to do that. Do you have a website in addition that people might want to check out?
0: Yeah, it's www.danielokrant.com. Uh, not a lot on it, but uh, if you want to know more about the book, uh, there's, there's quite a bit there.
1: Daniel Okren, it's been a great pleasure. I enjoyed your book immensely, and I look forward to watching PBS this week and hope we'll speak again sometime.
0: Thanks very much. You read the book, (laughs) which, as you know, is pretty rare in your industry. Uh, I can't thank you enough. It's been a pleasure.